can't believe it. That Gerald is presenting the quarterly budget report with finger puppets? Look, here comes a 1.7% decrease in fixed overhead. Hello, everybody. No, I can't believe how easy it was to save hundreds of dollars on my car insurance with Geico. Who are you? The projected increase in organic Q3 revenue. Hooray! Believe it, Geico could save you 15% or more on car insurance. This is Captain Will Fritz of the Dallas Police Department. The chief of detectives is a man who's known as perhaps one of the most astute crime investigators in the whole Southwest. Captain, where do you think your investigation stands now? Does it look good? Yes, it looks real good. I think we're in good shape. And Captain Will Fritz has been in charge of it. We want to say this, that this investigation has been carried on jointly by the FBI, the Secret Service, the Rangers, and the Dallas Police Department. Captain Fritz has been in charge. No, He's in charge. Will you have a further statement of any kind? Well, not necessarily, no, Captain Fritz, is he showing any sign at all of cracking? No, I couldn't say about that. Captain Will Fritz, the chief interrogator of Lee Oswald here at the Dallas County Police Station. Captain, how far back have you been able to trace it? I wouldn't want to. to Was uh, it court in town, for instance? I wouldn't want to talk what about, about that. What about the bus driver? Did you talk to him? Do you know who was the bus driver? Yes, sir. We know the bus driver. What does he say about Russia? Uh, this interview is being conducted with Captain Will Fritz, chief of the Dallas Homicide Squad. Uh, Mr. Fritz enjoys a reputation, one of the finest interrogators, not only in the state of Texas, but in the Southwest. Now, he's been uh, working constantly on Lee Oswald, but as he himself says, he feels no closer to a confession now than he did before. This, of course, is uh, nothing detrimental to the captain. It does say something about the determination of Lee Oswald. Sir, he said he was. What does he know to you about? He hasn't admitted anything. Uh, I mean, has, has he, he given any any story at all about his movements or his feelings in this thing? He has, sir. Did he make fingerprints on again? I would want to. Wouldn't want to talk about the prints and. Without uh, going into the evidence. Before first talking to the district attorney, I can tell you that this case is cinched. That this man killed the president. And there, there is no question in, in my mind about it. Captain Will Fritz, the chief of detectives.
What is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode 74 of the Lone Gummin Podcast, and today I have a very special guest for everyone out there, the author of Impossible, The Case Against Lee Harvey Oswald, in three volumes. Mr. Barry Krush joins me on the show today. How you doing, Barry? All right, Rob. How you doing? I'm doing very well. And uh, just, just uh, for everybody not familiar with you, um, you did something kind of unique in the in the JFK community in, in writing your book. Uh, could you just tell everybody uh, a little bit about your, yourself and your book? Well, sure. Uh, basically, what I wanted to do was go back to the original evidence of the case to prove that um, you know the, the debate that's currently going on is did Oswald act alone or was Oswald part of a conspiracy? Right. And they frame it as sort of like either or. It's one of these two choices. But in any of those choices, Oswald is involved. Of course, there's a third possibility, which is that Oswald wasn't involved. There was a conspiracy, but it was a conspiracy to frame Oswald. Right. So to get to that point, you first have to look at the evidence and ask yourself, would Oswald have been convicted in a court of law? Is there any... If there's a trial, you had a legitimate jury that wasn't rigged, and you had a judge that wasn't withholding evidence, and you conducted it in a fair and impartial manner, could Lee R.V. Oswald have been convicted of the crime? And the thesis of my book is that absolutely not. In fact, such a conviction would be impossible under the rules of criminal procedure. And that's what the book's about, all 1,000 pages of it. Wow. Yeah, and you know that's a real uh, big problem when you, when you start to really look at, at what actual evidence uh, you know can be attributed back to Lee Harvey Oswald because you know you need uh, you know means, motive, opportunity. You know you need a murder weapon. Um, all this stuff is questionable when you actually start really digging into it. Right. Well, you know, no one does dig into it, so. The reason why anyone believes it's Oswald to begin with is what I would call a hall of mirrors effect. So if you take an object and you put enough mirrors around the room, you know, uh, each one of those objects is going to see, or rather, each one of those mirrors is going to see the object and an observer is going to go, oh, wow, you know, look at this. This thing's reflected all over the place, you know. This must really be true. And so if you hear all your friends say it, and your friends hear your friends, and their friends hear their friends, and everyone says the same thing, it's really almost like the emperor's new clothes. Like, people start to doubt their own eyes. Yeah, well, they start to just believe it, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, what, you know, that's what everybody learned in school, was that Lee Harvey Oswald was the, was the assassin, and, and, and that's that, unless, you know, you took the actual time to actually do a little digging on your own, a little reading, and... Uh, you know, maybe finding out some other things that spurred you on to do uh, more research. And, you know, it's a, there's not a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, are interested in the Kennedy assassination. It's kind of a tight knit, a tight knit group. And it has been ever since, ever since it happened, really. Um, right. Well, you know, the thing about it is, is that how many people are going to sit there and plow through thousands of pages of documents and put it all together and, you know, it took me two years to write that book. How many people are going to do that? So it's a lot easier just to say, yeah, it's Oswald, and be done with it and go about your business than to actually go, well, you know, is it Oswald? Let me look at the evidence here. Because the work in putting the evidence together is just really formidable. But that work has been done. 
In fact, um, you might be interested to know this. About three or four days ago, I have put my entire book up on the internet for free. Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, if they go to YouTube and they type Krush Oswald Framed, and they can see a video of a very important uh, series of photographs related to the shells in the National Archives, but there's a link in there to my book, and so the entire thousand-page book is now up. So people don't even have to buy the thing. They can just download it and read it. Wow, that's awesome. So everybody out there listening, you want to read more after listening to Barry and what we're going to be talking about today. Now, speaking of that YouTube video, Barry, that is what sparked me to reach out to you because, you know, when it comes to actually looking at the evidence the way that you did, you know, not a lot of people do that, but when... When you, the way you explained it in the video, and I'm going to put, the, I'm going to embed the video in the post on tlgpodcast.com so you can watch it right there on the page. I, I highly recommend everybody do that. I mean, we'll be talking about it today, but to actually see the shells and what we're going to be talking about, you need, you know, you need to go check it out. Um, so let's get into these shells a little bit, Barry, because this is what, you know, sparked me to reach out to you because I was intrigued and I, I wasn't aware of, you know, the chain of custody and actually more shells than were supposed to have been there. Right. Well, so there you go. So when we talk about evidence, you know, evidence is sort of like has to pass the smell test, right? Because there's a lot of cases out there where police are planning evidence you look at all the people that were convicted, you know, on death row, and then they found out that uh, they planted a blood sample, or they planted a weapon, or whatever they did. There's even a Supreme Court case where someone had put red paint on a pair of trousers, and the, um, the chemist for the department testified it was blood. <laughs> and then two years later, they found out, it, no, it wasn't really blood, it was actually red paint, and the Supreme Court threw out the conviction. They said you can't get a conviction on phony evidence. So first of all, the first hurdle that people have to understand is that, yeah, there's phony evidence out there, and it's planted by the cops. <laughs> so once you realize that, then you got to go, okay, well, now they have these rules for evidence. Um, it has to pass the smell test to make sure this doesn't happen. One of those rules is something called chain of custody. So if you find shells on the ground and you're Officer A, you're supposed to mark A on these, these shells. If you pass it off to B, Officer B is supposed to mark B on the shells, and then Officer C marks C on the shells, and then you're supposed to see A, B, C. And then when they go into the trial, they show the shell to the guy on the witness stand, and they say, A, are these your initials? Yeah, that's me. B, are these your initials? Yeah, that's me. And C, are these your initials? Yeah, that's me. And so A, B, and C have to testify to each having possession of that shell. If you can't do that, yeah. then you have not proven that that uh, evidence was actually at the crime scene. could have been planted after the fact. And in fact, that's the, the missing piece in this Oswald case, which basically destroys the whole case. Because as I demonstrate in my book, which again, they can read for free in Chapter 9 of Volume 1, um, and it's not just the video that goes into this, but it's this whole logical sequence. In fact, that's much more important than the pictures in the video. It's the testimony that was given before the Warren Commission and documents that were hidden by the Warren Commission and that were discovered later. And when you put it all together, you can see that there is no chain of custody for those shells that would ever 
uh, pass muster in a court of law. But therefore, Oswald couldn't even go on trial to begin with because you wouldn't have that very crucial evidence uh, allowed to be admitted in the trial. The, the judge would throw it out for that case. But probably in a different case, they'd be admitting it to prove the guilt of the Dallas Police Department in planning phony evidence. Yeah, I mean, when you start stacking it up, <clears throat> you know, you got affidavits from, from, from uh, cops on the scene, you know, about it being a Mauser, first of all. And, you know, mm-hmm. these, these could be used in a court. Um, now, the, the shell problem, um, I think it was originally two shells were found, but then that kind of turned into three, you know, when they needed three shots. And mm-hmm. then when you, when you morph these three and these two together, that's five, you know? Correct. And, uh, three plus two is five. And it's two different shells. I mean, two different groups of shells. So that first group was passed along when Oswald was still alive. You can theorize, you can draw some theories about why this thing was constructed that way, right? Because at the time Oswald was still alive, you know, you couldn't very well implicate him in the assassination because he knows he doesn't, didn't do it. So therefore you have to have some sort of cover story for Oswald. Once Oswald is dead, then you can go to the three shell story. So the evidence for the two shell story was buried by the Warren Commission. And no one knew about it. Right. Right? Only the three shells story made it to the pages. But in 1992, the Dallas Police Department released their files, and also there was um, there were some memos and some commission documents that were never officially published, as well as some photographs that were just sitting there in the National Archives that no one had bothered to see. And all of a sudden, there's this whole other group of shells. Um, and it's like two plus, like you said, two plus three equals five, because the first two shells were passed to a guy named Brown of the FBI. The other three shells were passed to Sims of the Dallas Police Department. So in, on that same day, within an hour of the president being assassinated, you've got one guy has two shells and another guy has three, but there's only supposed to be a total of three according to the final story. Right, and then they get kind of mixed up with their evidence numbers, and, you know, there's only, I think, one shell actually in the archives that has any kind of a semblance of, of initials on it, right? Well, there's, there's one shell that has, um, that's actually, there's one shell that very, and I didn't notice, in, notice this in the video, this came out after, but there's one shell has the initials JDW, which is J. Doyle Williams, who was one of the guys that handled the two shells. Right. Then there's a third shell, which has two letters, D and part of an A, and a guy named Day handled all three shells. But it looks like whoever wrote that there decided, well, maybe they better not do it after all, <laughs> yeah. uh, because they wrote it in the wrong place on the shell where he testified he was going to put it. Furthermore, those shells are hopelessly compromised. Um when was the last time you looked at the uh, the chapter nine, the the analysis of it, the logic? Oh, it's been it's been a couple years. Okay, so that's really the the thing that shows the problem with the chain of custody. But you know, these photographs are just sort of like the icing on the cake. And one of the things that I found when I uh, got the photographs from the National Archives is that one of the shells has 
a marking that's sort of scratched out and a new marking put on. And that uh, marking went from Q7 to Q47, or actually Q48. Uh, it started off as Q7, most likely, which is the FBI uses evidence numbers, right? Q6, Q7, Q48, yeah. those are the official numbers. But someone took one of the Q7 shells, scratched out the 7, wrote an 8 over it, and then stuck a 4 in front of the 7 to make it look like it was 48. Yeah, I couldn't believe that when I saw that. I was like, are you serious? And, and these yeah. have been sitting in the National Archives for all this time. You know, and, you know, a lot of people focus on, you know, the documents and, and this and that and the other. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to actually focus on the evidence. And, uh, yeah. You know, that, there's a, there's a famous picture. I think it was first in Curry's book. And you were talking about the, 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 uh, the J. Doyle Williams. Uh, there's a photograph and it actually has the two shells. It has the, uh, JDW initials as FBI evidence sitting on a desk. And, you know, I've seen reports of, you know, two spent shells and one unspent shell being initially found up on the sixth floor. Right. And then, you know, of course, this this morphed into, of course, you know, with three shots, they need three empty shells. Yeah, so then what they did was they made up a photograph uh, with some shells in it because they what they did was they reconstructed, that was their word, they reconstructed photographs since they didn't have the original photographs. And after Oswald was dead, no one was going to object. So they went and just basically staged some photographs as if they were taken on November 22nd. And they do have some officer testimony that they saw three shells. But, uh, you know. Yeah, you know how that goes. <laughs> you trust these people. You know, I mean, if these people are part of the plot, what are they going to say? And it's pretty clear to me that at least two of the officers in that department were part of this plot based on the behavior, their behavior. Right. Um, you know, and that's what a lot of these, a lot of these lone nutters, you know, I have, I have a couple on my show from time to time, you know, just to, just to keep everybody happy and, and you know, have a little engaging conversation and, and some discussion. Um, and what they'll say, Oh, you know, how, you know, how could this be, you know, all, so you're saying all the cops in the, in, the, in the DPD were dirty. You know, they all were in on it. They all had to know. But in reality, you don't need everybody knowing everything. No, you do not. Mm-mm. No way. You only need, it's, what's amazing about it is you need very few people. You just need this guy, Day. Uh, maybe two or three other people that are part of this group in the Dallas Police Department, but these people control the evidence and they're like the first on the scene. Then you just need some guy who can uh, swap out evidence in the FBI laboratory because all the evidence goes there, right? Everything is funneled through that place. All the photographs, everything that was gathered yeah, they ends send it up all in there. this FBI evidence laboratory. Once that laboratory is closed at 5 o'clock in the afternoon or whenever it's closed, someone has access to it, you know, at night, with a key, and they can swap stuff in, and no one would know the difference, right? Like shells. Yeah. So shells come in, and then the shells that go out, but are they the same ones that, you know, are they the same ones? Um, yeah, because when, when the rifle is taken out of the depository, you know, in a couple pictures, and of course it might not be what I'm looking at, but it look 
it looks what appears to be a clip in the bottom of it. Uh-huh. And I don't think they ever really established where Oswald got his, if he got him, his Carcano bullets. Um, uh-huh. And I think the clip was, what, a five-shot clip? Uh, I thought it was six, but it could have been five. It might five. be I don't six. It might be six. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Five or six. But say, you know, it was a full clip. So they would have had, you know, if only whoever was up there, if anybody was up there, um, you know, initially, I think, you know, they would have had, you know, at least a couple extra bullets to play with. So that after the fact, you know, if they needed to, you know, do, do a little something, something with it, they had the opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole thing is, is if this thing was carefully laid out and planned, it would be indistinguishable from the official story because the people who are running the show have the power to basically control the investigation into Oswald and turn that investigation into a, an evidence manufacturing party where they can simply plant whatever they want to tell whatever story they want to tell. And you can show that this kind of thing is going on because of the contradictions that come out later on where the story is constantly changing because they had to change it to make it compatible with other things that were discovered. So the classic example is the uh, single bullet theory. So the original story was that there was two shots fired into um, Kennedy and right. one shot into Connolly, and there was no single bullet that went through both people. Right. So two shots hit Kennedy, one hits Connolly. But then later they realized with the Zapruder film that Oswald could not have shot uh, something that quickly. He couldn't have gotten off a shot that fast. So they had to account for the fact that Connolly and Kennedy are hit so soon after. And so that's when they came up with the single bullet theory. But to make the single bullet theory work, they had to move the wounds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then they also had to change the testimony of the people. And then they had to have them sign agreements that would say that they wouldn't talk to anybody. Uh, which they did later on. And when they talked later on, the, the guy said, oh, yeah, that shot that went in the back, it didn't go through the Kent president. It stayed in his body. Yeah, and they and there was a shot in the front through the throat that stayed in his body. Yeah, and they weren't, so Kent, they weren't allowed to dissect their, that wound in the autopsy. No, no. So, you know, you have three, that's right, that's three shots right there that are in Kennedy. Uh, an entry wound to the, the neck, uh, a shot to the back, and of course the headshot. Yeah, that's three shots. And then of course you have Connolly is at least one, most likely two shots, just to Connolly. So that's five shots. And then of course you have some missed shots. Right. So one plus two there. So minimum, absolute minimum, five shots. Most likely like seven shots. Well, Oswald can't shoot that fast. No. Not only that, the shots are coming from different directions. Yeah, I was always amazed at the, uh, you know, they try to attribute these Carcano bullets. You know, one, you know, doesn't have enough power to actually go all the way through Kennedy. You know, it kind of goes into his back maybe maybe an inch, and that's it. You know, I think exactly. one of the doctors said they, they could put their, you know, their pinky, you know, maybe up to the first knuckle. Correct. And then, uh, you know, you, you got one Carcano bullet that splinters into a million pieces in his skull. And then you have one Carcano bullet that exactly. magically stays intact and does these, yeah. you know, death-defying feats. But, but the nature of what's going on tells you how carefully planned this thing is. Why would they 
have bullets that have uh, what's called they're called I think it's called short shot or something like that. They have less gunpowder. It's it's really designed to sort of like stun the victim or just sort of like not pass through the body. Why would they do that twice? Once to the back and once to the throat. And the answer is now they can recover a shell. And they can say, oh, look, this is the shell that we recovered. Here it is, right? Exactly. And then you can link that thing with, whereas if it passed through, then uh, it would implicate someone other than Oswald. You see, you have to be able to trap those things. Then you have to have another shell that shatters and therefore can't be traced right. somewhere. So all three of those, sh- those shots are things that cannot be traced. And uh, that's sort of, and you know, the, the Carcano bullet is supposed to pass through the body. It's full metal jacket. You know, it's military yeah. ammunition. I mean, it's designed that way. And yet none of these things behave that way. No, no. And, you know, I, you know I've been looking at a, at a lot of the different aspects of the case, you know, is it, especially, you know, in, inside the school book depository, you know, supposedly right before the shots, you know, you got... Bonnie Ray Williams supposedly eating his lunch up on the sixth floor until as late as 1220. You know, Oswald's is seen, you know, around the first floor, second floor area, you know. Around 1215. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard for me, and I, I and I still am not having made my mind up, you know, whether somebody else was either up there shooting or that that was just a, a fabricated crime scene. Well, I could have been both. You know, if you, on the, chapter three of my book, I have uh, photographs, comparison, that prove that someone was up on that sixth floor after Oswald, if he was there, which I don't believe he was. But even if he was there, someone else was there after he left because the boxes are moving. Now, of course, you have to ask yourself, why would someone be moving boxes into position after an assassination? Who would be doing something like that? Yeah. And again, this just go all this stuff, you know, all this stuff individually by itself looks kind of strange. But when you put it all together, it really is all telling the same story. Someone is trying to manufacture evidence and create a set and create a story that's going to implicate this guy. That's the one, you know, explanation that ties all this crazy stuff together. Yeah, and I think his background you know, even if he, even if he wasn't even, you know, witting as to what, you know, he was doing, um, or being led to do, but this guy's background, I think, you know, being, being a defector or a former military, being a, a defector to Russia, um, you know, I think, you know, when, when a guy like that comes back to the United States, especially with a Russian wife, um, you know, that, that sets off little alarm bells for them. And they think, okay, you know, we we might be able to use this guy for something, you know. Um, well, so the first question you have to ask yourself, and this is one of the keys to the whole thing, is: Is Oswald really a communist, or is he just one of these, you know, hundreds or even thousands of informants that were sort of like under deep cover, working for the government, but under the guise as communists? And there was a lot of these people, and I go into that in my book. In fact, 17% of the Communist Party uh, in the 50s and 60s were FBI agents. (laughs) Wow. So the Communist Party was thoroughly infiltrated 
by the government. So Oswald could have been working for the Office of Naval Intelligence. He received training in Russian. Uh, where would he learn to speak Russian like he learned? No one, you know, that he knew that wasn't in the military knew how he learned this, but there's testimony that he received training um, in California in the uh, language school. Well, why would the Marines train Oswald in Russian? Well, because he's going to go undercover for the Office of Naval Intelligence as a so-called defector working for the United States to go in there and infiltrate, you know, the Soviet Union. But once they have a guy like that who's gone under deep cover, now they are free to basically have him do a lot of actions that would indicate that he's a communist when, in fact, he's just, you know, a Marine trying to do his job, following orders. You can, you can move that guy like a puppet. You can make him do whatever you want to do. You can yeah. tell him to go out there on the street and pass leaflets <laughs> and for Cuba, and then you, you can make sure there's a television camera there to record that. And then you can make sure that there's another one of your guys there to start a fight with him, and so therefore they get into a debate on a radio show. So now you not only have a film of a guy passing out leaflets, but you also have a debate where he's on audio tape. And now you can say, oh, look, yeah, this guy really is a communist. See, we have the film, and look, we have the audio. Yeah, you've got the perfect cover story. And even a couple couple weeks before that, you know, he went to the uh, the Jesuit college that I think his, his cousin uh, was at and gave a speech about, you know, life in Russia and communism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the censure for that is, of course, you know, what was going on in New Orleans that summer of 63, and, and, the, and the characters that he's associated with there, like Guy Bannister. You know, oh, yeah, right. All of his friends all of his friends are like CIA guys. Yeah, and anti-communist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and anti-communist. So, yeah, anti-communist, right. So he has enough connections to these, this underworld of uh, military intelligence that people are going to go like, mm-hmm, something fishy is going on here. This isn't just some guy. Um, yeah, I think they were using him to like ferret, you know, ferret out possible communists because, you know, I, I, I've seen that, you know, Guy Bannister, you know, he was a notorious communist hunter back then, and you know, he would report back to the, you know, the FBI, you know, his his supposed communist uh, links that he was finding there in New Orleans, and uh, you know, somebody like Oswald, you know, handing these flyers out, you know to whatever sailor is getting off the boat and, and thinks he's got a good idea and gets in contact. He wants to come to his meetings and join his, his, uh, fair play for Cuba committee. You know, well, ding, ding, ding. We got one. Yeah, exactly. And you know, his office, uh, was in the same place where Bannister's was. They were in the same building. Exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, and you know, we have reports from, you know, Delphine Roberts, you know, Guy Bannister's secretary that Oswald was there. Right. Exactly. You know, as well as Ferry and, and all these other characters. And, uh, yep. You know, for the, for the long, for the longest time, I think, you know, just to wrap my head around it, I think, you know, the original plan, you know, for whoever, you know, planned this little thing was to actually, you know, try to force the blame back on the communists, you know, be it Cuba or Russia or, or what have you, um, you know, as, as having Oswald linked to Cuba or Russia, 
or the communist and have it look like, you know, a, uh, you know, th- that's who sponsored the assassination. Yeah, well, it, to me, the most likely thing is they had all these threads out there because, you know, when they're planning this thing, they don't really know what's going to happen, right? Is Oswald going to live? Is Oswald going to die? Is Kennedy going to live? Is Kennedy going to die? There's all these possible contingencies. So they had to be prepared for every one of these things. So you've got mafia suspects. You've got Cuba suspects. You might have some Dallas Police Department suspects. You would have just the Oswald lone assassin thing going on. So they had like, all these possible stories that they, they could tell. Once Oswald is dead, though, um, then they can go to plan A, which is, yeah, it was a lone nut. Uh, don't have to worry about it. No more conspiracy thought. We can wrap this investigation up, and we can go about our business. Yeah, because I look at it like a, you know, it's a case where every, all these elements, CIA, FBI, you know, uh, Dallas police, you know, all these people had reason to cover their ass, you know, be it, be it their own people were involved, or, or be it they had ties to Oswald in some form or fashion. And they did not right. want those exposed, you know. So, you know, the FBI, for instance, you know, would have had, you know, reason to totally distance itself from any ties with Oswald. Same with the CIA or the ONI or military intelligence or, you know, elements within the the DPD, which I think you can tie back to, you know, Ruby possibly. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know, they all all these entities had a reason. You know, to kind of cover things up and, and, you know, pin this solely on Oswald and that's it. Yeah, well, you know, the thing about this is you really have two narratives. There's only two narratives that are consistent with what we'll call layer one of the evidence. And that first narrative is Oswald was a lone assassin because that's where all the primary evidence is going to support. And the other narrative is that Oswald is framed and that there's this larger plot out there designed to plan evidence and make it look like it's him. And, and so all the facts are consistent with both of those. But the way you can actually prove it's not the first one is to show that the first one is impossible. Right. It was physically impossible for him to do that. And once you've ruled that out, you're only left with the second one. Yeah, but and it looks... So it, oh, it, it's, it's difficult as it might be for people to believe or absorb you know, once you've eliminated, you know, the impossible, then you are left with whatever else is, which could be improbable, but that's it, you know? Yeah, that's a big key, you know, with being able to, you know, to prove in in a court of law that he was guilty. And, you know, I think you, you laid it out good, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a ton of other supporting so-called evidence and evidence and testimony out there that I don't think they could have ever done that. And even, even Jesse Curry himself stated, you know, that they couldn't put that man up there with a rifle on the sixth floor. Well, no, I mean, there's no, there's no evidence he's on the sixth floor. And not only that, there's evidence that he wasn't on the sixth floor. Uh, Oswald identified two people that were out in the front in his notes to, um, the detective Fritz, when he was being interviewed, he talked about two people that were outside. He could have only seen them if he was downstairs. So you have witness testimony that was there at 1215, and you also have Oswald's own uh, 
description is taken by a police detective that he knows the name of the people that are in the lunchroom, and he knows the names of people that were outside. Right. He would have only known that if he was down there. And, um, you know, so there's no evidence at all that he was even on that floor at the time of the shooting. Right. And, and getting back to the, to the guns for a second, I, you know, I was always curious as to why mail order and why to an alias, you know, because if Oswald wanted a gun, I mean, all he had to do was go to, to the, you know, the gun store or whatever, either in that town or a different town and just go buy one. Why all the, uh, exactly, you know, this mail order nonsense and, and, you know, well, because the mail order is again, if you, so you have to take a look at what is the story that explains all this, these crazy things. And the answer is that somebody wanted a chain, a yeah. trail, a paper trail that's going to connect him to this thing. But there's been some excellent uh, essays written about this, this chain of custody for this rifle. And when you look at that, you realize that you can't pin that to him either. So they say it's his rifle, but there's no evidence at all that it's his rifle when you actually look at it from the chain of custody perspective. Yeah, that or the handgun for that matter. Uh-huh. You know, because I, well, personally, just, just from looking, you know, real close at the tippet shooting, um, you know, there's a lot of, of other suspect Dallas cops, um, you know, like Gerald Hill, who happened to be at all three crime scenes, uh, Westbrook and, uh, you know, cause I, I made this supposition, you know, just, just from looking at things that, you know, it could have possibly, um, have been Larry Crayford who was impersonating Oswald that day, um, could have possibly had his ID on him. Uh, could have possibly shot Tippett, you know, and so on down the line. And, uh, you know, everybody says, well, well, how did he get Oswald's gun? I said, well, you know, how do we know it was always Oswald's gun? You know, could have became right. Oswald's gun after the fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that whole and that whole thing. So, really, the original part of the plan, as far as I'm concerned, was that Oswald had been killed pretty early on, either at that Tippett uh place where he was supposed to be lured and killed or at the texas theater he was not supposed to escape as far as i can tell and because he did escape that's why we have that second sequence of the two shells uh, which we never would have heard about if he'd been killed when he was supposed to be killed right because i think you know just from tippett's behavior you know it seems to me like he was hunting oswald (laughs) You know, he's right. he's sitting there at that Galaco station at the end of the Houston Street Viaduct, waiting. This is right after the assassination. You know, and then he and then he kind of goes into a panic mode where he's you know he runs in the top ten record store, which is right across from the Texas Theater. Um, you know, he starts pulling people over and kind of looking in their cars and, and and what have you, and stopping people on the street. You know, and uh, you know, just from the timing of Tippett's death, you know. You know, as early as say 106 is is when I think you know he was probably killed or, or around to thereabouts. You know, I don't think Oswald could have got there by then. No. Well, I think uh, one of the hypotheses is that Tippett was killed by an accomplice, um, and they, the hypothesis is that Tippett was supposed to shoot Oswald, but he got cold feet once he heard that the president had been killed. He decided to back out of it, and so the accomplice killed Tippett. Uh, and then no one was there to kill Oswald. Uh, that's the hypothesis I've heard. Another hypothesis says, well, 
there was a backup plan to kill him at the Texas Theater, and that, that failed also. So, uh, you know, with Oswald loose, it was like, uh-oh, what do we do now? Yeah, because they, could, um, they couldn't just murder him in front of all these people at the Texas Theater, you know. Yeah. You know, but um, even, even when you look at that, Barry, you know, you got you got other witnesses saying they took somebody out of the back of the theater. Right, exactly. You got other reports saying somebody was arrested in the balcony. Mm-hmm. You know, even the, I think it's the J.D. Tibbet uh, homicide report says that. And the report of yep. one other officer, I think Stringfellow is his name. He, you know, he reported a suspect arrested in the balcony. And uh, Bernard Hare, I think he was the owner of Bernie's Hobby Shop, that shared an alley with the Texas Theater, saw somebody arrested out of the back of the theater. Um, I think Butch Burroughs even said he saw somebody after Oswald was arrested out the front that they take somebody out the back. You know, so it's just, it's it's crazy when you really start looking into, you know. Well, there's so much of that stuff in this case in every area that, you know, it just cannot be explained apart from this narrative that this thing was planned that way. Because there's no other case like this in the world where wounds are moving, you know, a back wound moves up three inches and a head wound moves up four inches and the number of uh, marks on the pavement don't match the number of shells that are fired. And you've got, you know, five shells that are passed in evidence when only three are supposed to be there. And boxes moving in a window when no one's supposed to be there. Yeah. It just goes on and on and on. You know, uh, what explains these 40 to 50 anomalous incidents? Conspiracy. <laughs> Conspiracy. That's the only thing. And, you know, because you have to make up these phony stories for each one of these things individually, which might work for one or two of the things. But, you know, ultimately it's like, what? I mean, for example, the power goes out in the building when um, the limousine turns the corner. Right. Get ready to hear the power goes out in the building. Or not only that, simultaneous with that, the radio channel that the police are broadcasting goes out for three minutes. At the time of the assassination. Yeah, so they can't communicate. Right. So, now what are the odds of that happening? A billion to one. <laughs> Simultaneous, right? Yeah. Just as they happen to turn the corner in front of the uh, assassination zone. Exactly. It's unbelievable. But, you know, and I'm sure you have too. You know, you talk to some of these, these lone nutter guys and I, I just don't understand how they can, how they can rectify you know, I know why, because it's a whole lot easier, I think, to believe in the lone nut scenario because you don't have to really look too much further. You know, you can just believe what you're told. You know, that's what the official story is. That's what the Warren Commission told us. That's what the FBI said. We have no reason to uh, think they're lying to us, so we believe it. Exactly. You know, but this is not the first time, you know, in the history of the United States or the world, or for that matter, that there's been assassinations, that there's been conspiracies. So why is it so hard to believe? You know, especially even after JFK, you have MLK, you have his brother, you know, bang, bang, bang. And there's, and you know, there's conspiracy stories for, for, for both of them, too, you know. and Yeah, absolutely. I have no trouble believing whatever the evidence tells me. You know, the evidence is going to communicate to you whatever is happening. And, 
you know, you either look at the evidence or you don't. But it's really, at the end of the day, it's all about evidence. It's not about theories, really. I mean, there's conspiracy theories and conspiracy facts. Right. You know, there are conspiracies. There are such things. And they are proven by facts. So when you look at the facts of this case, it's crystal clear to me that there is some kind of conspiracy. The theory is that, you know, well, exactly who's behind it and how did they do it and how is it coordinated and all that. That's when you get into the theoretical part. But the fact that there's some conspiracy there is no, you know, hypothesis. I, I think it's proven. Well, I've got a thousand pages that I think proves it in my book. And I've offered $100,000 to anyone who thinks that they can disprove it. And no one's taken me up on my offer. So, Well, imagine that. So all you yeah. lone nutters out there, you think you can uh, prove the case for, uh, you know, Oswald's guilt? There's $100,000 in it for you if you can in front of 12 jurors, right? Right. Well, 12 arbitrators right. in the American Arbitration Association. I've offered this to over 70,000 people have seen this video and downloaded the book. And not one of them has taken me up on the offer. So I think that's a pretty good sample. Yeah, no um, doubt. Yeah. I, I couldn't believe that. I was like, I was like, man, you're, you're putting your money where your mouth is. So, and of course, oh, absolutely. nobody, like you said, nobody's taking you up on this offer yet. And because they, they can't do it. I mean, they look, they, they, they tried this back when boot with uh Bugliosi, when they, they kind of did a mock trial over in England, I think it was in the eighties. Right. And you know, People try to point to that as saying, you know, oh, this is how Leah Oswald would have been found guilty. But yeah. th- there was a lot of evidence missing from that trial, believe me. Well, the evidence that's in my book, I'd say the most significant evidence wasn't even around. Right. So, you, you know, and it was buried. And it's the evidence that's buried that proves a lot of what I'm talking about in the book. Furthermore, you know, the guy that, that was the um, defender of Oswald wasn't a criminal attorney. Jerry Spence, he was a guy that did these, uh, you know, torts cases. He's not a criminal attorney, and I don't think he was really very well versed in what was going on in the case. No, but I don't think uh, so you take a guy who is versed in what's going on in the case, um, and you give him my book, and the evidence in the book, you can't lose. And again, that's proven by the fact that I've offered the money, and no one's taken me up on it. So, you know, if my case were weak, they would be taking me up on it. Exactly. They don't. They don't have uh, anything to lose. I mean, just go for it. Um, so. Now, is there any other uh, any other good little nuggets, pieces of evidence uh, from your book that we can we, that we can point to to maybe uh, exonerate Lee Oswald a little bit? Well, I'd say the main thing is Volume One, Chapter Nine. It's all on the you know, it's all there on the link. You can read it. Volume One, Chapter Nine is the main thing, and Chapter Three. The moving pictures in the window would show that someone was on that floor after Oswald was supposedly gone, uh, if he was there to begin with. Right. And, you know, all the stuff related to the single bullet theory, which is pure claptrap, and I proved that it's impossible trigonometrically. It just can't even happen. This is no way it can happen with all the angles that you've got. You know, a bullet cannot, it has to go in a straight line, okay? Right. Uh, for the most part, a full metal jacket bullet that's supposed to pass through a body is going to go in a straight line. And, you know, when you look at the angles of the pass of the bullet through the body as compared to where the, you know, the shot supposedly came from, 
it just doesn't add up. So there's no mathematical sense this evidence makes. No, not at all. You know, and uh, no. do, do you have a website out there that people can visit? Um, well, I do. It's kush.com forward slash JFK, but um, they can go there. But the main thing is the video, and um, they can read the thousand-page book, put it on their iPad, and just read it. And you got the book link there under the video. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'll post that video, everybody, right up with this show on TLGpodcast.com, and I urge everybody to go look at it, watch it, study it, learn it, and be amazed at what you're going to see or not see <laughs> on these bullets. Um, well, it is pretty amazing, I'll say that. It's like seeing how a magic trick is done, I would say, would be my analogy. You know, you look at a guy who uh, is sawing a woman in half, you go, how did he saw the woman in half? And then someone says, oh, here's how he did it, and they show you all the tricks. That's what my book does. It kind of shows you how the woman was sawed in half and how they how they manipulated this evidence. Yeah, because, I mean, these guys in the, in the DPD and the FBI, they know about chain of custody. They, you know, they're seasoned veterans. They're seasoned investigators. They know that they better put their initials on the gun, on the bullet, or whatever they find and, and pass to somebody else. You know, they know this, and they're just yes, not they there. Do. You know, it's just not there, people. <laughs> They do know it. They know it very well. They did it with some of the evidence, and they didn't do it with all the evidence. Right. And so that's sort of like the te- the, the tell. That's the thing that sort of clues you in as to what's going on. Yeah, and these, these, these shells were found while Oswald was still alive. So, you know, it wasn't like they had found something after Oswald was killed and didn't need to go to trial or anything. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, Barry, man, I appreciate you coming on and enlightening the crowds, and I hope we've sparked a little interest in in your book and your work. Uh, you know, I think it's amazing, and uh, you deserve a lot of credit for what you've done here. Well, I really appreciate uh, you calling me, and thanks so much. And if you have any other questions, just let me know. Will do. And uh, any, any, if anybody has any questions for Barry, you know, you can uh, send them to me. I'll get, make sure he gets them. Um, or try to answer them as best we can. And, uh, Barry, I appreciate you coming on the show. Everybody check out Impossible, the case against Lee Harvey Oswald. You can get it for free on the YouTube link that I'll post up. Uh, Barry, you hang on the line for me real quick. Sure. Everybody, head over to tlgpodcast.com for all the back episodes. Make sure you're checking out the Dallas Action on Spreaker and Facebook. Uh, that's my buddy Doug's podcast. He does. He does great. He just had another episode out today. Check it out. Um, that's it for this week, people. Hope you enjoyed it. There's some bitches in the can. Be about to satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.